When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. As we enter what could and should be a decisive week for Brexit, we're going to bring you an episode of Red Box every day this week, reported from Westminster and Brussels, on what is happening, who is making the decisions, and if everyone is just too tired to do anything. This first episode is being recorded in front of a particularly attractive and wise audience at Podcast Live. Welcome. Welcome to the light in Euston. The creme de la creme of British political podcasts have gathered for a whole day of sitting around saying nobody knows what's going to happen. Joining me to explain why the Times really do know what is going on is Red Box reporter Esther Webber, who will ask how we all became parliamentary wonks. Times columnist David Aronovich on how the two-party system could yet be broken up. Katie Perrier, a Red Box regular who was Theresa May's Director of Communications for a year on why we need a new charm offensive in politics. But first, Sam Coates, Deputy Political Editor of The Times, with some bad news for anyone who thought the end was in sight. Just get it done, goes the cry. Just get out. Well, I've got great news for listeners. Brexit is a maze and you're not going to find the exit. I suspect by this stage, everyone's worked out that there's a phase two of Brexit. But even when that's done, and I'll probably be in my 60s by that stage, do you honestly think every Prime Minister that comes along after that won't want to fiddle with the settlement once more? Is there a point, uh, Sam, where, uh, speaking to journalists in the lobby, Times political journalists, we live in hope that one day this might become a job for Callum Jones, the trade correspondent in the business section. Is there a point where this becomes all about trade negotiations and the crossing the I's and dotting the T's on chlorine chicken, and it it stops becoming the thing that Westminster is obsessed with? No. (laughs) And, and And the reason for that 
is the reason that actually I find Brexit interesting. Because what Brexit has done is it's taken back a huge number of the biggest questions about British politics, migration, trade, um, social and environment law. And uh, there are now questions about whether we want to control it ourselves and what we should do with those areas. So suddenly politics is about big things in a way that previously those were all things being done in Brussels. And those are the things on the table in the next part of the negotiation. So yes, there'll be an extraordinarily tedious conversation about tariffs, but there will also <laughs> be a big conversation about the things that matter to our everyday lives. And that's why we're still going to be writing about it and speaking about it for years to come. Does this fill you with joy, Katie? Was no. This, was this what you, you went into working into politics for? <laughs> I find the whole thing utterly depressing. And I'm very worried that all the things that we really care about, uh, if you put Brexit aside, such as uh, building more homes, uh, making sure the NHS is uh, fit for purpose, uh, making sure our schools can uh, be as good as they can be, uh, all of those things are just getting completely lost um, you try and engage with a minister now on some of those issues on behalf of a charity or a client, you know, I work in, in that line of work, and um, uh, they go, oh yes, yes, that's very nice, but I can't possibly come to your event, or I can't possibly sign up to that massive piece of work that you'd like me to participate in, because everything is consumed by Brexit, and I can't really see an end to that for a long time, and that's, I think that's quite depressing. I think it also could possibly put off regular people into going into politics, because you've got to be a kind of absolute geek to want to participate in the next couple of years if it's only Brexit. There are people who are really into it and there are people who aren't and it, it sort of attracts a certain type of politician who do want to talk about tariffs and sovereignty and borders and you know and the people who care about the other stuff you were talking about they're not going to make the leap into politics. No and so um, I spent a lot of time working with the group called Women to Win which is hoping to get more female Tories onto the green benches. And after all the hard work, I know we've lost Heidi Allen and Anna Sudbury, but it's still at 20%. And how can you go out and say to nurses and doctors and you know, just, just regular family people that are working really hard, two people both in work and say, look, we really want you to come and join the Conservative Party. We want you to come and stand up for residents in your constituency. One of the failures of politicians over the last two years has been actually to allow themselves to be sucked into that unbelievably tedious argument about the single market and the customs union. But I think that, to go to back to what Katie was saying, I think because it is about the biggest picture elements of who should govern us over the biggest things in our lives, and, and we've lost sight of that in an argument that is, seems almost designed to mean it, make it as impenetrable as possible. Also, I think that even though, you know, we're all sick of Brexit to an extent, um, <laughs> we are still engaging with it despite ourselves. It's almost something we can't look away from. It's like uh, an addiction. We've got to go cold turkey. Yeah. It, it, feels, it feels like Sticking a box a set. You're room. three series in. You know, I've, already, I've already committed so much time to yeah. I've got to, I've got to watch naff, it to the end. To it to it's the completely end. lost the plot. Yeah. It's completely implausible. All the Characters are now ridiculous. And everybody who just died is about to come back to life again. <laughs> Thinking of no particular former foreign secretaries in particular. Yeah. David, are you enjoying the box set? I mean, the week after the referendum result, I wrote a piece saying there should be a second referendum. So I think I'm kind of, you know, sort of, you know, fairly in advance of... Uh, because I just couldn't see a way in which we could get to a result which wasn't pretty catastrophic for the country, and particularly for the futures of younger people in the country. I just couldn't see it. Um, there is a way in which this can be ended, and that is if we have a second referendum and we vote to stay in the EU. Now, of course, of course, I, I, I'm honestly not, I'm honestly not saying that for the applause. I, I really, really am not. I really am not. 
It is true, of course, that the people who are most deeply opposed to that will be very, very upset about it. And one of the things that we could learn, conceivably, from the Theresa May experience would be the need at that point <laughs> to do everything you could to, to, be, to try and bring people together and to palliate them because of what you've just done. But I can't see another way in which this ends within, the de within a decade. Was, was there ever a way that someone could have managed this better to get to a point where enough people in the House of Commons supported a deal that got us through. And actually, yes, there would have been people who didn't like it, but the sense that we could have gone along a road where we did leave with a deal last week, and then we moved on to the next stage, and people had the disagreements, but we got, we got there in the end. There's this sort of the poisonousness of the, of the debate, and the, the fact that everyone is still in those stock positions from June 2016. Nobody's moved. You still want a second referendum. I'm not aware of a lever who wants a second referendum. There hasn't been a shift in that. Is it, was it always destined to be like this? That's what you do. Well, one of the things that's really interesting for me is the way in which people are now occupy positions with regard to types of Brexit that they sim simply didn't occupy before the referendum. There has been, I called it in this week's column, a self-radicalisation that's gone on particularly amongst Brexiteers, where people who definitely did argue for Norway-type solutions in the period before the referendum used to argue with them. We used to actually say to them, look, what's the point of doing this? Because actually you just would be a rule taker, not a rule maker. Oh, no, no, Norway's fine. It's all great. Switzerland, that's great too, etc. And then we discover in the most recent period that that's actually tantamount to treason. That you should <laughs> actually probably be executed for thinking the thing that they thought two and a half years ago. Um, <laughs> And, and there's a kind of cognitive dissonance which, which, which begins to appear. Now, at the same time, if you like, on the other side, there has been, I think, you know, you can understand it, there has been a reaction to defeat, which has also been a form of radicalisation. People who didn't know that they cared about something three years ago have discovered that they actually do care about it quite a lot, and it matters to them far more than they ever expected. You try holding a demonstration that gets 400,000 uh, on it in favour of the EU before June 2016. You'd have got 40 of us, and, you know, 39 of them would have been members of the Liberal Democrats, and the other one, and the other one would have been there by mistake. <laughs> Esther, do you think it was always going to be like this? I don't know if it's just kind of my natural fatalism, but it does feel like where, wherever there was an opportunity for things to go wrong, they did, and they went wrong. And they wrong. have. Yeah, yeah. They, they have, and they went wrong in a way that has made any resolution even more difficult. Things like the way the party numbers fell in 2017, relying on the DUP, who are obviously opposed to pretty much everything. Something <laughs> 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 to themselves. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, the fact that now, you know, some of the most liberal MPs from both parties have broken away, like all of the maths kind of mitigates against finding any kind of consensus or compromise. And obviously that didn't happen in a vacuum. It's partly because of the intransigence of Theresa May. Katie? Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that, in a way, once the genie was out of the bottle, we just couldn't get it back in after the uh, EU referendum. And so the, th the thing is that, though, that I constantly kind of battle with, I think... Uh, on reflection that Theresa May and the Conservative Party owned Brexit in a way that didn't need to own it. 
didn't need to own it lock, stock and barrel because there were people in the Conservative Party that didn't vote for Brexit, that, that, that wanted to remain. In fact, their own colleagues in Parliament reflected overwhelmingly to remain. And so to own it in that way, to have those red lines in that Lancaster House speech so early on, to be stuck and wedded to a position without having any flexibility, um, I think did set a path that was just impossible to follow after that point. So I do feel that maybe with a different party leader or maybe with a different approach, and I'm not necessarily saying that a reach out to Jeremy Corbyn would have done it because I think he wanted Theresa May to have enough rope on Brexit and had, didn't want to have anything to do with it and continues to be that way. So I'm not sure that was necessarily the way forward, but reaching out more to the public and saying, look, I'm prepared to compromise. I'm prepared to prepare you for compromise because I think for ages, for, for over a year at least, there was a talk about how everything's going to be fine, everything's going to be wonderful, this is going to be our custom-made deal, it's going to be unique to us, it's going to be bespoke. We're going to choose our own bespoke Brexit. Like a kitchen. Um, exactly. Yeah. You can choose the handles you want. You can change exactly uh, all the things that you might like. All knobs. And, and, it turned out. And, <laughs> and turns out that you said no. You said no. You're not choosing your own at all. And a lot of that you could definitely see coming. So I think, uh, in hindsight, yes, there were mistakes that have been made that that's made this bad situation worse. Sam, just very quickly, was it always going to be end, end up being like this? The day after Theresa May came into Downing Street, the late Sir Jeremy Hayward went in and said, Prime Minister, you've got a couple of options about the way you could do Brexit. One of the ways you could do it is by having a big conversation with the public about the types of Brexit and the ways that we should go. But she was shut down from doing that. Her advisers shut her down and she decided not to. Instead, she did one thing, which was to make Brexit a binary choice, her way or the highway. And that approach gave rise to a year's worth of, you're with me or you're a traitor, you're with me or you're against the people. And I think that has had such a corrosive legacy impact as it turned out that her way, well, she didn't even know what her way was. <laughs> and arguably still quite doesn't quite. And I think it, it is in that space that all the errors, I think, were made. Was if she had had a big conversation with the country, she'd have shown everyone how good she is in a conversation, as we all, <laughs> as we all know. Let's move on. Let's talk about uh, leadership. And this is Katie Perrier. How important is it for politicians to possess charm? Maybe someone more charming than the Prime Minister would have had better luck winning support during the Brexit negotiations than she has. But then again, David Cameron was charming, but that didn't do him much good when trying to reason with the EU either. Of course, charm in person doesn't always translate on television. So how much does it really matter? In a way, Katie, when Theresa May went into number 10 and you went in with her as a director of communications, her lack of Cameroonian charm was seen as a bonus. You know, we'd had enough of all that flashman stuff and... You know, the fact she was a bit dull and a bit straight and oh, that was seen as a positive. But actually, that is what she's like with everyone. And as we've seen over the weekend, even reports of her in conversations with Jeremy Corbyn about Brexit, they just go in and she just reads out what she's been reading out for the last two years and then they leave and they're sort of not sure <laughs> sort of what's happened. Um, but charming politics is important, isn't it? I mean, it, politics is a people business. How you get elected, how you get selected, how you get stuff done, that's charm of some form and getting on with people is part of the job, isn't it? I think so, and um, I don't think I really place as much importance on it as I do now um, when I went to work for Theresa May inside number 10, but we did sell uh, her traits in terms of the fact she's not clubbable, she doesn't scratch back, she doesn't promise people jobs, she isn't about, you know, I'll look after you, you look after me, the, you know, the kind of greasy ladder type scenario, she's not like that at all, she is kind of, you know, I want to run this, I want you to join my team, but as a result, no one ever knows where they stand. 
and nobody really knows whether or not they're being informed and included or they're left out in the cold. And I'd spend a lot of time at number 10 going around to everybody saying, it's not you. It's not you, it's us, it's number 10 that's, the, that's causing this problem here. You just carry on as you are, you're doing a good job, or whatever it might be. In fact, I'd, I would call up the odd MP and say, the Prime Minister was telling everybody how fantastic you were at the morning meeting this morning. They'd say, was she really? I've never heard anything, anybody say that about me before in, 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 you know, in regards to Theresa May. And I'd say, absolutely. Are you saying it wasn't road. true, Katie? It was, it was true on occasion, and it was... <laughs> <laughs> And it was true when she would say, oh, that was, that was a good speech, wasn't it? And then I would blow it up into the best speech you've ever heard in your whole entire life. But isn't this, isn't this basically how she became Prime Minister? She had two very strong advisers, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, who knew what they wanted to do and they knew what they wanted her to do. And she did it. And she did it quite well. And that was how she ended up as Prime Minister. <laughs> in a nutshell, yes. But then when you look at Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson oozes charm. But can you have too much charm? And therefore, it's... The, the groan in the audience <laughs> suggests you can. <laughs> and that, therefore, it's not taken seriously. And it's all, you know, a bit of a joke. And of course, charm, can, by some politicians, can be absolutely put on. And it's really fake. I think that, that charm does matter. When you talk about politicians one-on-one, -on -one, people say that Ed Miliband's charming, but yet he looked a bit awkward on television. And William Hague is exceptionally charming, but yet again, didn't really kind of communicate. So I don't think it's the be all and end all, but certainly you have to have something about you. Um, and I feel that the EU partners that we were negotiating with felt that Theresa May utterly lacked charm. And therefore, we know how these things are done. You go into your official meetings, but a lot of the stuff is pull you over in the corridor to say, look, you know, how are we really going to do this? Come on, let's do that. You know, I need you on my side. She doesn't do any of that. It's straight down the line, read out from the script and go again. And actually, the weird thing about the EU negotiations is that, as we'll see this week, although there's a whole load of people on the outside, eventually it comes down to 28 people in a room. And actually, a great speech or a great intervention or looking like you're doing something in, you know, a bit dynamic and flexible, you could pull something off. I mean, you literally need the best salesperson in the world, and we don't have that. Are you actually, saying all this in 2016, Katie? The irony is, <laughs> well, what we've seen over the last two years is on occasion, I think that she could have possibly won over more of her backbench colleagues than she has been able to do some because of that lack of, you know, reaching out and bringing them in. But also, the irony that one of the David Cameron's best skill sets um, we were missing the minute he left. Um, I think that we, you know, we struggled since then because there's no, nobody at that top team that's got the ability to, to, to reach out. David, I remember during the Gordon Brown years, people telling us if only he could go around and meet everyone one-to-one, -one, he'd be able to talk them into voting uh, Labour. In person he was yeah. great, but on the telly... Do you remember when he went through that weird stage of smiling? He was told to... <laughs> You could tell that he, was, he would be doing an interview and he'd tell him, oh, smile. And it was fine. It was absolutely terrifying. It is a skill, isn't it? You do have to fake it, looking like a normal, smiley person <laughs> um, in politics. It's, it's interesting to see um, the relationship between charm and, if, and effectiveness. I think that the key to it is the capacity to persuade and the desire to persuade. In other words, the desire to put your case, listen to the other case, have the argument, and to do it again and again and again, changing your mind, possibly changing the other person's mind, but understanding all the time that the business is about persuasion. You have got to move people from where they are, if they're not in the right place as far as you're concerned, to being there. So who are great persuaders? Well, Blair and Clinton were always persuaders. They were always interested. And Blair said to me that Clinton's what, uh, phrase had been, never stop arguing, just never stop putting your case. 
Theresa May never started putting her case. <laughs> never. It was a kind of, you had your slogan, you repeated that slogan, and that was the end of the attempt at persuasion. That was as far as you got. So for everybody listening to it, every time you heard it, it was after a while, it was like having the door slammed in your face. She does not like the business of persuading people and engaging with people and attempting to change their minds and successful, nor did Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown, who was really funny, I mean, everybody would say, and it was true, witty, intelligent, and an often relaxed man, by the time he got to be the Chancellor, had metamorphosed into this kind of incredibly grumpy... I mean, I'm, again, first time I ever went to see him after he'd been made Chancellor, I thought, this is going to be good, because Labour's just become, you know, the party of government, and he's now in office, etc. And he said to me, he said, um, uh, we're looking, because he thought journalists did this kind of thing, we're looking for some kind of good, you know, ways of selling what we're doing, you know, good slogans. And I never really thought up a good slogan in my life. <laughs> and, he's, and I said, oh, you mean, like, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. And he said to me, remember I said, I thought that up. <laughs> <laughs> in this gigantic office, which was he just in, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Labour had its chance, and there he wants to tell me that he thought up a slogan. That's somebody who is a little bit sensitive. Do you think it's, about, it's also about empathy? The, the ability to understand the other point of view and to try and engage with it and understand the lives that people live and how different they are. Because I, I think that if you can do that, you can reach across and you can say, you know, that, your life doesn't reflect mine and mine doesn't reflect yours, but I understand yours and I'm listening to what you're telling me and I'm listening to the things that are happening to you in your lives and your children and your elderly relatives and I understand and I'm going to go back to Westminster and do something about it. Whereas sometimes if you're just being talked at... There's no kind of bounce back in terms of what you get back from people. Sam, I always thought in the run-up to the 2015 election campaign, David Cameron was always miles ahead on the best PM polling ratings, even though it was sort of neck and neck with Labour. And actually, I think a lot of people have met someone like David Cameron. He's the posh bloke at school or the, you know, the down the pub or that idiot who was at a wedding or whatever. But you've met someone like that. You've met someone like that. People haven't really met people like Ed Miliband. He likes baseball and Rubik's Cubes and weird, you know, American economists and Harvard and all that. Sort of. And that, in the end, is people could see what David Cameron was all about. They might not like it. They might thought his priorities were wrong, but they could work out what he was all about. There was something, and Theresa May sort of a bit, you can't quite sort of get a handle on them. I think, the, um, I think Katie's test, the charm test, is a really good test because it evaluates a politician on, on the two absolute fundamentals of politics. One, the ability to build coalitions, and it goes without saying, political parties are coalitions within themselves, and then you need to go beyond that in order to win a significant enough slice of the electorate to get into power. And then the second uh, sort of facet of charm is the ability to lead, and it's that ability to, uh, to stand on a table, state your case, and have people follow you. When I think of Theresa May in the last week, we saw the statutory 40 minutes at Prime Minister's questions. We saw six minutes on Tuesday night in a bizarre down the barrel of the camera uh, statement after that horrible seven-hour um, cabinet meeting where they all got thoroughly bored. And that was all we saw from her in an absolutely critical uh, week. She doesn't like putting herself out there. She neither coalition bills nor sets her direction. It is incredible that she spent two and a half years coming to a Brexit plan. And I can't really remember an occasion why she explained to the country why her kind of deal was the one that she put forward. Why is she so scared of the public? And I suspect it's because she's just not that good at those two core political skills. 
Esther, before we move on, we should probably talk about um, Jeremy Corbyn. And, I mean, the Labour Party is not awash with charm, either. <laughs> is that fair to say? It's becoming clear that 2017 was kind of the high watermark of people being in love with Jeremy Corbyn. Obviously, those who are converts kind of remain there to a big extent. But it feels a bit like the fight has gone out of him as well. Like You don't see as much of him. He's not kind of out and about, um, kind of talking to the media that much. Listening to everything everyone said about Theresa May, you kind of are left wondering, why on earth is she Prime Minister? <laughs> <laughs> and if it is literally because the best people dropped out of the race, it's hard not to feel quite depressed <laughs> about that. So do we think, um, very quickly, and we'll try and do like almost one-word answers, or two words, who is it who's got charm in politics that we should keep an eye on at the moment? Not necessarily because you agree with their politics, but who... Is there anyone... Oh, dear, the faces of the <laughs> panel sort of speak volumes. Is there anyone... Katie's got one. Ruth Davidson. Ruth Davidson, OK. Oh. So she's got someone who... She sounds like she means what she says. She, she talks like a normal person. Go on, Sam. Anybody who does those hour-long LBC phone-ins has something about them, that ability to give up, whether it's Tom Watson or Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, or even Nigel Farage can take questions from anybody. Now, that's not, that's not an advert for them becoming Prime Minister, but what it is, is an advert for a kind of skill that is so conspicuous by its absence in modern politics, that ability to appear in public and just explain why you're doing what you're doing and acknowledge that not every option that you had to go for was perfect and that there are downsides from every choice, otherwise politics would be far obvious and far easier than it is. David? That was one word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> By Sam's standards, it was. I'm going to go for um, a couple of people who've got anti-charm. Complete repellers of all charm, etc. Um, Chris Williamson and Richard Bergen in Labour are the expression of anti-charm. The second they come on, you feel they want to kick you in the face. <laughs> I would actually say John McDonnell. He, he would definitely, I think, been seeing more and more of him. He's doing this kind of cuddly uncle routine. <laughs> and I could see him doing a phone-in and getting on fine with that. And actually, I mean, actually, Nick Clegg was the first one to start doing those phone-ins and was brilliant at them. It's his fault. <laughs> like oh, yeah, and, and I think the, the, result <laughs> in, the result in 2015 suggests that uh, a good LBC phone-in alone uh, is not going to propel you to electoral, electoral success. We need to move on now, though. Coming up, David Ivanovich on breaking the political mould and Esther Webber on learning the parliamentary rules. We'll be back after this short break. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Red Box podcast recorded live at Podcast Live. This is David Ivanovich. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I will have a riot on my hands if only David Ivanovich gets a round of applause. Let's do that again, but without the round of applause. You know, professional jealousy is a real problem. Just read your thing, David, read your thing. Were there to be a general election in the nearest future, then almost anything could happen. I think, given a halfway reasonable alternative, voters would administer a rebuff to the two-party system. If the cartel is unwise enough to call an election soon, the independent group and others could do far better than polls envisage, resources suggest, or pundits allow. Think Scotland, where in 2015 Labour went from 41 seats to just one. Incredible, but it turns out, under the first past the post system, not impossible. Now, I thought your column uh, last week was really interesting because it is this idea that everyone says, well, that can't happen. You know, look what happened with the SDP. Look what happened after the Second World War. These things don't happen, but they don't happen until they do happen. Yeah, exactly. We went into the 2017 election. If you remember, just a month before that election, <coughs> we'd had council elections in which the prospectus for Labour had been incredibly bad. Theresa May calls an election and so on. At the point where she calls an election, she is, I think, about 44% to 28%. A few weeks later, we have a hung parliament, although uh, both parties are in the 40s and so on. Essentially, what that tells you is that there is an incredibly vo- incredible volatility about the electorate. There's another big factor in here, in fact, another couple of big factors. One is that the last two major elections we've had, the referendum and the election, showed a generational division we have never seen before. In other words, patterns of um, inherited uh, support for parties have simply disappeared. Now, this means that the long-term secular decline in the main two-party vote, which went back a bit in 2017, I think is very much on the rise again. And then, within the last few weeks, Lord Ashcroft's polling, he does a very substantial... I don't like the man at all, but he does do some good polling. Um, <laughs> and what it showed was that the level of affiliation amongst voters ran at about 19% for the Conservatives and 15% for Labour. These are absolutely historic lows. In other words, people don't feel attached to the two main parties in any kind of particular way. I don't think it would take that much for people to say, no, sod this, I'm not going for this anymore. And I don't care that you're telling me that if I don't vote for you, then the other lot will get in, uh, because I don't want either of you, actually. I just want something else, and this is going to be my only uh, route to getting it. This prediction also goes in the direction of my own desires and prejudices, and it's always always really dangerous when that happens, because you're kind of looking for the argument that takes you to where you want to go. And if people in my position have learned anything, or should have learned, anything over the last three or four years it's not to be kind of beguiled by your own desires 
But I actually think this is true, and I'll end up um, just this kind of little bit uh, by saying, back in 2001, I went off to the Wire Forest constituency uh, because it was where my mother had been brought up. It's over by Kidderminster on the banks of the Severn. Uh, it had been won by Labour from the Tories in 1997, but before that had been a long-term Conservative seat. In 2001, I saw an independent campaigner there called Richard Taylor. They were closing down the local hospital, and he stood as, a, uh, as an independent candidate. And I went canvassing with him and went kind of talking to people and so on. And what I found was a willingness, if the right candidate was there, to dump the two parties, which was absolutely astonishing. People were happy to do it if you gave them any other kind of possibility. And that's really stuck in my mind. I think if ever there were an occasion when people would be likely to do that, it would be a general election in the very near future. Esther, uh, let's bring you in there. In yeah. particular, let's talk about the independent group, now well, yeah. Change UK. Well, I, I just wanted to say that there's also a flip side in terms of what David was saying about that kind of tallying with his desires, is that, well, yes, there is the independent group who clearly feel very strongly that we should be given the chance to stay in the EU. And that's one side of the kind of radicalisation picture you were talking about earlier. But on the other side, there is also, you know, votes to be had for a no-deal party for some kind of hard Brexit. We've seen, like, the Brexit party, together with UKIP, polling reasonably well. And given the fact that the next elections we have our locals and potentially Europeans, there could be some inroads, you know, the two big parties could lose big time on the right as well. Um, so I'm not sure it all goes in one direction. Katie, partly this has been brought about by the fact that if we did have a general election this week, Theresa May's Brexit position could break the Tory party down the middle, and Jeremy Corbyn's Brexit position would break the Labour Party down the middle, that actually this massive issue of Brexit is destroying both political parties. It's exposing, you know, they could all agree over spending more money on schools or more money on defence before, but this is a massive issue which has sort of exposed divisions which are there for a long time, and actually they're going to be really difficult to put back together, which is what, if they, all the parties do explode, something has got to come through. I mean, you're going to have more manifestos than I've had at hot dinners, and I'm no Kate Moss. And so <laughs> my point would be on that front that you're going to have some serious concerns where people up until now, you know, one of the, one of the broad attractions to Conservative parties, that it has been home in the past, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nick Bowles. And the fact that that's falling apart means that you're being forced, as I am, as a Conservative member and you know, previous activist, to choose in some way. Uh, you can't be in the middle. You're not being allowed to understand both points of view. You're, not being, you're, you're forced to take a position. And I think that's incredibly dangerous politically, to force people down a route that they don't really want to be forced down. They want to be part of the party. But I think David is completely right. That people are starting to align themselves more with the Leave or remain rather than Conservative or Labour, which in a very short space of time, really, is just phenomenal in terms of that change. 
I mean, what did we used to do before we talked about leave or remain? You know, they were never words I'd said about <laughs> 80 times a day. And now we say them all the time. And these are labels that I don't feel very comfortable with because if you're a Remainer, then clearly you love the flag that they fly in Westminster every day. And I go down it wanting to rip it down because just because I want to stay in the EU doesn't mean to say I like the EU. It doesn't mean to say I like these people that are being particularly nice to us and I like the flag. And so I think that this, this is a really difficult scenario when, you try and, when, when we're trying to be labelled and put into boxes. And if there was an election tomorrow, we'd be pretty screwed because we don't really have a political... Lots of people, even, even ones like me, that are in a political party right now, don't necessarily feel that we might be offered a political home. What do you make of this, Sam? Um, I've just been making a list of all the things that I don't know the, the, quest, the answers to, the questions, if there was an election tomorrow. We wouldn't know whether or not Theresa May would be going into it as Tory leader or whether there wouldn't be a putsch. And I couldn't tell you under any circumstances who the potential replacement for her would be. I couldn't tell you what the Tory Brexit position is, whether or not it's uh, a harder Brexit, her deal, something completely else, something completely different, no deal. Um, I couldn't tell you whether Labour would go for a second referendum or not. Clearly, 80% of the Labour members want that. Three members of the Shadow Cabinet are campaigning for that. Jeremy Corbyn is resistant. Where will those discussions go? Um, I can't tell you whether or not that great big surge that we saw in 2017, uh, anti-austerity surge, which worked for Labour last time, uh, confounded a lot of expectation whether or not that would happen. On either wing, if you look at the Remainy parties, um, uh, the TIG group, James UK, plus the Lib Dems are up at 18, 19, 20%. That could have a big effect. But we don't know whether TIG will even be able to stand. And, and knowing that the first party's uh, past the post system virtually guarantees your political suicide in this, in, in, in this environment means that maybe they won't get a great deal of support. Um, maybe all pro-revocation parties could get together. Uh, currently, the SNP, uh, the Lib Dems... Uh, and TIG uh, and Plaid all uh, effectively just want us to cancel Brexit and then work out whatever comes next, usually a second referendum. What happens on the other wing? Um, at the moment, the Brexit party, which is a nascent Nigel Farage party, plus UKIP is polling combined at about 11. I think that's got surge capacity to go up as people are frustrated with Tory compromise. So that could have a big effect. All of those things mean that it is the most unpredictable... If it was to happen, it would be the most unpredictable election of our lifetimes. And we've said that for every election that I've covered, but I think this would undoubtedly be true. There would be one certainty, which is you'd never get home before midnight. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I do think one of the, one of the um, knock-on effects of the current political climate is that we're all now allowed to say we don't know. The, the pundits and the reporters <laughs> and all that, you know, you're allowed to say we don't I know. I got the 2014 Scottish referendum independent surge wrong, the 2015 <laughs> general election result wrong, the 2016 EU referendum result I didn't see coming, and the 2017 election I thought Tories would win. So, you know, things can only get better. I assume you said all that in your Sky News interview. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, however, there is uh, something that we have all had to get to know about. So let's move on. Uh, this is Esther Webber on why we are now all parliamentary wonks. I'm not sure if anyone's got round to selling the film rights yet, but Erskine May has been the hottest read of 2019 <laughs> so far, as we all try to figure out what the hell's going on at the moment. Having unsuccessfully tried to deploy all the nuclear options which are usually available to politicians, say a general election, trying to get rid of the leader and votes of no confidence, because all those things have been tried and failed, MPs have been left trying 
all these kind of obscure parliamentary acrobatics to try to find a way out. It's made procedural nerds of all of us as we try to keep up with it. But the thing is, the process is normally a means to an end, and it's not really clear what that end is or whether we'll find out before Westminster gets washed into the Thames. <laughs> <laughs> now, Esther, you should probably fess up here because you, you watch the House... You love the House of Lords. Yes. In a way... <laughs> it's quite unnatural. <laughs> <laughs> I am... Um, no, it's a case of Stockholm Syndrome. So I, I used to be just the parliamentary reporter, as I think Matt's covered that beat as well, but it obviously didn't uh, obsess you. I'm much better like, now. I've been, I've, yeah. uh, I've been to enough um, rehab. But yeah, because I, because I was covering the Commons and Lords, I sort of tried to understand what was going on, and now, and again, various quirks of procedure would come up um, that you had to get your head round. And now it's like those quirks are coming up every day and more and more because of this weird situation we find ourselves in where the government has no majority, uh, well, effectively no majority because the DUP is not supporting its main policy. And the MPs are looking for all these kind of cute workarounds for the so beginning part of this phase of the Commons life, kind of since December, I was like, oh, finally, some of my really obscure knowledge is useful. Um, <laughs> but then it kind of just got stuck there. <laughs> and, and it almost, I think, sort of became a refuge that people could think about, you know, what amendments they were going to put down to try and find more time for... X, Y, and Z, any kind of solution that might command a majority seems further and further away. And in the meantime, the kind of the one certainty is that John Burko has become the star <laughs> of the show. And Which he hates. He hates all that attention. <laughs> yeah. And he's furious It's obviously <laughs> devastating <laughs> to him. But yeah, the fact that, you know, me and colleagues who used to cover Parliament now see people regularly kind of doing impressions of John Burke or Peter of Bone or someone like that. We're like, what alternate universe are we living in? You were into it before it was cool. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's basically what she's saying. Here. She's saying, yeah. well, I never used to be cool, but I am so cool. Yeah. People calling me up saying, Esther, what is going on? How, how is this going to play out? Throughout this whole process, the clerks have been really helpful, they're kind of the unsung behind-the-scenes heroes making this whole thing work on a day-to-day basis. And they hold regular briefings for journalists. And I think when they started this, there were about four people turning up. And when it was the business motion to take control of the timetable, it was standing room only. <laughs> like, they've become rock stars. But Sam Esther's right, isn't she? That we saw this, the MPs who just felt that something must be done. We've got to do something. Alighted on the idea that Oliver Letwin should become Prime Minister for the afternoon. But having got there... There seemed to be a sort of slight sense of panic among them. They didn't really know what to do with it. And actually, it turned out they, got, they took control. It turns out this Brexit thing's a 
quite complicated. Yes. I mean, the first thing to say is we are all Esther Weber now, and thank goodness we've got you on the Times. It is a myriad and a blizzard of complexity, and without you uh, and a few other people who are on Twitter and all the rest of it, we wouldn't understand it. All we can do is sit there with a um, plausible manner and uh, a serious face and look like we know what's going on when we don't. One of the reasons that we're in trouble is we've got an executive and a legislature that are at odds. The legislature, the Commons, is trying unusual techniques to try and direct the, legis uh, the executive more than would be common, and that's led us through these various processes that are all called Cooper Bowles Letwin, regardless of the fact that they're all different, <laughs> um, but all have Oliver Letwin in an exalted position, and they're designed to take us to a softer type of Brexit uh, against the will of the government. My starting point for this is I do not believe fundamentally that in the end the Commons can govern. The Commons can hold an executive to account, it can direct and it can veto, but it doesn't have the power to govern. And that's what, what people are trying to do at the moment. And I think the Oliver Lettmans of this world know that Theresa May, as Prime Minister, has to smell the way that Parliament is kind of going and then pick up the, you know, pick up the reins and, and, and go in that direction if she wants to get anything done. But, but you can't govern from the green benches, and I think that's a really important point. And, of course, every time Yvette Cooper stands up to speak... The rest of the Labour Party thinks, if only we had a different leader. Um, uh, whenever you grab, when, when you talk to someone in one of these tents in Westminster, and, you know, you, you, you know, mean you mean on TV when you're doing a, uh, you're not living in a tent in Westminster. I feel like I'm living in a tent in Westminster. <laughs> you mean you, you mean a, tea, a, a BBC gazebo yeah. is what you mean? The food's pretty rubbish yeah. and it's quite cold and there's no booze. But apart from that, and you, you pull them aside and you say to them, look, you know off air, you know and I know that if you had anyone but Jeremy Corbyn and they'll fight back and say he's got a massive lead he's, got, he's an asset and they look at you and go he's an asset to, to the Labour Party I thought well you could have said that a couple of years ago but now every time Yvette Cooper stands up to speak you all look and think well not only could I probably have her and be part with her as a Conservative Party member. That's saying something. All of her colleagues around her are looking up to her and thinking, you are showing leadership at a time when nobody else is showing leadership. And I think we will look back and, and think that one of the great failures here hasn't just been Theresa May, it's been Jeremy Corbyn as well. The answer to your point is probably that Yvette Cooper should have been less rubbish during the leadership campaign in 2015, but that's, yeah. let's, not, let's not go back three, uh, four or five years. I, I love think given <laughs> everything we just said about Theresa May before the break, it's no wonder MPs look at that and think, oh, we'll have a go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> David, you, you, David, you've been very quiet on the end. Are you gripped by parliamentary procedure? It's... Thank okay. you, David. Yeah. <laughs> all, all the way during my journalistic career, people have been saying, look, our parliament is the mother of parliaments. Look at that fabulous building. You might not like PMQs, but other people, we can assure you, really envy it abroad because it's where you're held to account. And, also. and, and what them. I see, what I feel I see, is a, an antiquated institution stuck in a ridiculous building that it shouldn't be that should actually be turned into a museum they should move they should have procedures and we should actually we should actually think about how our procedures are developed well, at the moment we just developed them historically on the basis of that's bound to be good enough well we've hit a crisis and it's not good enough whenever i give up hope i just think of mark francois or barry gardner and it's all fine again <laughs> i think it's whenever i think of them that's when i give up hope <laughs> um, now, 
I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. If you thought the other four on the panel were a bit boring, you can come to my one-man show. Uh, this is not normal at the Bloomsbury Theatre on May the 29th. Tickets are available at mytimesplus.co.uk. Please do subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And you can sign up to my morning red box political email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, my thanks to David, Esther, Katie, and Sam. For me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.